everybody, and away we go with another edition of the Stampede Wrestling Show. Welcome, everybody, to Heartbeat Radio on the Powerhouse Radio Network. I'm your guest host tonight, the Cowboy, Johnny Mantell. It's August 24th, 2014, and of course, I'm joined by the leader of the pack, uh, Bruce Hart. Bruce, how are you tonight, my friend? Not bad, Johnny. Uh, nice to hear your voice again. I hope everything's uh, going well for you and Kay, and uh, I'm looking forward to tonight. It's always uh, always enjoyable, uh, just kind of uh, kicking around stuff. And uh, I'm told uh, that we have some interesting guests on tonight, a few old cronies of yours, from what I'm told anyway, uh, Eddie Wiskowski, uh Otherwise known as Colonel De Beers and uh, George Shire and uh, Matthew Mertz, um, a few other guys, I'm told. So it should, it should be interesting to hear. Um, I, I'm not sure what our theme is tonight. Whether we're talking about Minneapolis back in the day or Portland or both, you know, it seems to be. Uh, uh, I know Colonel De Beers already was uh, kind of prominent in both those places, so I imagine he's got some. Interesting stories about both of them, and George Shire, of course, I'm told, has written several books on the uh, AWA back in its uh, glory days in the 70s and 60s with Vern and Wally Carbo and uh, some of those guys. So it should be interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about some of those stories. You know, I've uh, I kind of grew up around uh, that. You know, uh, yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not 100 percent up on all the. Uh, oh, what was going on in uh, Vernon Wally days, you know? And I'm sure uh, you kind of grew up around that, and it was uh, kind of a uh, back back in its day was uh, one of the real big territories. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some inside stuff from some of the uh, people that were in there when it was, uh, you know, riding high. So. But, uh, yeah, you know, Minneapolis is uh, another another one of those places that I did not make, and I wish I would have. I uh, I got to meet a lot of the guys from up there at different points during my career, and and Ed Wiskowski I had the pl- privilege of being with in Portland, Oregon, as he tagged up with uh, Buddy Rose and made a very good tag team up there. They made they made us a lot of money up there in the Northeast or the Northwest. Yeah, and always, uh, always a really classy guy, Eddie Wiskowski. You know, I, I, uh, I don't know him that well myself. I, uh, I know my brothers Keith and Brett uh, were on tour with him in Japan as they were with you, and uh, they always. Uh, I remember just used to tell me what a great guy he was. You know, a little classy guy and a nice guy in and out of the ring. So I, uh, I'm looking yeah, forward to. Uh, very nice guy. He uh, uh, and and you know one of those guys in the ring that if you talk to anybody that had the privilege of working with him, he was one of those guys you'd want to work with night in and night out. Yeah, I, I uh, that's exactly what I heard about Ed. And uh, um, yeah, beyond being a nice guy, a very very uh, good worker. You know, I uh, I've never heard anyone say anything. About his in-ring performance too, you know. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, touching bases. He's much like you, 
another guy I've never, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about you or or for, or that matter Ken as well you know I always uh, guys that uh, the boys always uh, speak well of you know which is usually the best uh, testimonial to what a guy really is you know so I'm looking forward to the uh, the program and I've been told a lot about this George Shire. You know, he's apparently uh, written several books on the uh, Minneapolis promotion back in the uh, Wally and Fern and maybe prior to that days. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing just some of the, uh, you know, the background to that. You know, because that was that was a lot, that was a in its day one of the real uh, up and center promotions in the business you know minneapolis was uh right up there you know there's about three or four places back in the day that were places that everyone sort of aspired to going to those where it was happening and where the money was and one of which was minneapolis another was carolina with the, the jim crockett and that bunch you know and uh and of course in seniors uh territory back in the day so those are uh be interesting to hear some of the uh inside stuff from uh george shire you know he's apparently written a couple of books on it and uh, a lot of those names are names that i you know i'm sure you too johnny you've heard the names the crusher the bruiser the you know some of those guys and uh but you never i never really uh hooked up with any of those guys that much even Vern you know he he's sort of a crony of my dad's and uh I've met Greg Gagne a few times and some of the more recent guys like uh, Jim Brunzel and then of course the guys that uh went from Minneapolis to WWE like Hogan and Jesse and uh and some of them but uh yeah, some of those names are sort of like names I've heard, and they're sort of iconic names, too, like Crusher and Bruiser. And uh, uh, I never really uh, knew them. You know, I'm interesting to hear some insight uh, perspectives about those guys, you know, what made them uh, special. Another one that I knew pretty well, he sort of, I knew a bit better, was old Mad Dog, uh, Maurice Fashon, you know, who... Uh, started in here i was pretty young back then but uh he had a pretty good little run in uh in burns territory too you know another guy that we started up here that i kind of knew was a bit of a kind of a, a notable character was old wayne coleman otherwise known as billy graham superstar and he was kind of uh one of Vern's main heels back in the day with his other buddy that uh, you might know, old Jesse, uh, Jesse the Body. So it's a lot, a lot of interesting names that are, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking to hear some uh, inside stuff on some of those guys. Well, you know, well, let's go. Uh, you know, you you've prepped him and propped him, and and let's just go to the phone lines and let's bring George Shire on with Johnny Mantell and Bruce Hart. George, how are you? Hey, guys, I am really great. And, boy, listening to uh, Bruce here, he's already put me over a couple of times. That's, uh, that's tough oh, yeah, to follow Greg, already. I, you know, I, and forgive my, uh, you know, I, I love, I, I'll have to get a, my hands on a copy of your 
your book or whatever. I've I actually heard your books. You've written a couple, from what I'm told. So, uh, but right. but yeah, I've uh, I've heard glowing things about about your retrospective on uh, the glory days of the AWA and all like that. And um, those are some iconic names. You know, those are names that almost any wrestling fan, you know, is. Uh, aware of and uh, probably fascinated by some of those names but um, I remember when I was a kid growing up that was kind of like uh, you know the uh, the big thing that all the uh, I remember a lot, a lot of guys my dad broke in in Calgary back in the 60s and 70s and uh, they were all aspiring to go to uh, Minneapolis or Vern's territory and that was where the money was at and some of them did end up there, old Billy Graham, uh, Wayne Coleman, and uh, Billy Robinson is another guy my dad kind of uh, had in here, and he ended up becoming a pretty big name for Vern and then uh, a few others. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was like the big, uh, one of the real, you know, uh, territories that everyone was wanting to go to and it was, it was a hard place to get into back in the day back in the 60s and 70s you know you had to really uh you know have have uh something going for you to, just to get booked in there you know it was it was uh a real feather in your cap if you were even working that territory i remember Vern used to send a lot of the uh green guys that he was breaking in he would have you know these rookies and some of them were like the Iron Sheik called Khosrow Vaziri and then uh, I remember he, at one time he was trying to send uh, Ric Flair who was you know uh, in that class of about 72, 73 another guy was Chris Taylor the big amateur wrestler and uh, Paul mm-hmm. Perchman who later on gained notoriety as Playboy Buddy Rose you know so those, those are all sort of but I, I remember those names, you know, and then, it, it, but back in those days, that was a tough place to get into, uh, you know, you'd, uh, that was kind of where the money was at, you know, you had guys like Harley, who later on went to KC, and uh, Larry Hennig, and uh, I think Red Bastine was there for a run, and Hercules Cortez, or Romero, as he was called up here, and then uh, Crusher and Bruiser were sort of uh, holding down couple of the top spots in there and um there was a, f- a few others you know but uh that was uh you know a really uh major league uh promotion f- for the longest time until uh you know uh it almost kind of transcended into the uh the rise of the wwe because so many of the guys that were burns headliners back in the 80s were really the uh impetus for the uh, explosion that became the WWF at the time, now WWE, but like, I'm sure you probably know all about that, but the uh, mm-hmm. H- Hogan and Schultz and uh, Mean Gene and Jesse and um, that Bobby Heenan and that bunch, you know, that that was almost the, the single uh, biggest impetus that uh, kind of... Uh, transformed 
Vince McMahon's promotion into what it became, you know, that, that infusion from uh, Minneapolis, especially with Hogan, who was, you know, had just done the uh, Thunderlips Rocky Three thing and was kind of, uh, you know, you know, the hottest thing in the business. But uh, a lot of, uh, I'm not sure if a lot of the fans these days don't realize that Hogan was actually uh, in in AWA at that time, and then, you know, his uh, kind of defection to um, WWF. Uh, was one of the, you know, kind of turning points in, in, in the history of the whole business, really, you know. And I think a lot of, you know, uh, WWE, sort of like Communist China, has kind of sanitized the uh, history or whatever. But uh, I think a lot of fans well, probably think, don't realize uh, how, how big AWA was at that time. It was sort of like the forerunner of the WWF. I think what a lot of people don't realize, some of the newer fans, is that uh, definitely Hulk Hogan was the guy that was probably most needed by Vince McMahon to pull off the expansion plans that he had back in the early 80s. But, uh, you know, we all have to remember that Hulk Hogan was in the WWF before he came to the AWA. Oh, yeah, Vince sort of ignominiously, you know, Sterling Golden, and I uh, had a few other, you know. Uh, yeah. Not sure. Did you ever did you ever cross paths with him before, Johnny? I, I remember uh, back in, um, this would have been in the late 70s, maybe 79 or something, my dad had a, a guy up here named Dick Steinborn who was uh, kind of uh, helping Stu in the office. And uh, I remember he had uh, these I remember the pictures. They were almost kind of funny at the time, but it was uh, these two guys called the Boulder Brothers, Eddie Boulder and Terry Boulder, you know, Terry Belay and Ed Leslie, uh, later to be known as Brutus Beefcake. But uh, Steinborn was trying to send send them up to Calgary from Mobile, Alabama. He knew some guy named Lee Fields who was the promoter down there. And... and, uh, for whatever reason, my dad didn't uh, ever, uh, never quite happened, and uh, they ended up, I think, going to Vince Sr.'s territory, and Hogan had a little run in there, a Sterling Golden or some such thing, and uh, I don't think it was anything too earth-shattering or anything, and then uh, he was kind of bouncing around for a while, I heard, and I'm not sure whether it was down in Florida or other places, and uh, then he seemed to, re- you know, his his big uh, first really big exposure was down with that uh, Rocky Three Thunderlips thing, and that that seemed to uh, transform well, he was, him. He was he was in Minneapolis when he got the gig at Thunderlip or doing the Rocky yeah. That's what I heard. Game. He was kind of, uh, and I think he he was called Hulk Hogan by that time, wasn't he? He was he was Hulk Hogan when he was first in the WWF working with Vince Senior. He was a heel and he had uh, Freddie Blassie as his manager, but he was still pretty green to the business. And then he moved over to the AWA. And the interesting story about that is that Vern Gagne wanted to bring in Hogan as a heel. He brought him in with uh, Luscious Johnny Valiant as his manager, mouthpiece, because 
if you really had a chance to listen to some of those very early interviews of Hulk Hogan, he, he was very, uh, again, to use the word green on the mic and, and kind of stumbled through them. Hard to believe what he became, but um, it wasn't soon after he came here to the Minneapolis Territory that uh, the fans started cheering him, no matter what they tried to do to put him over as a heel. The fans were cheering him, and so eventually, uh, after only about a month, two months on the scene, Johnny Valiant was gone, and Hulk Hogan was now a babyface. And then the Rocky Three movie came out, The Thunderlips, and that really skyrocketed him, and Hulkamania was running wild, as they say, and he was uh, the big star for the uh, early 80s for Vern. And, you know, really, that's, that's how it all started. He came in as a heel, and the fans bought him as a babyface. And, you know, the promotion was smart because they realized that's where their money was going to be, so they turned him to a babyface. I, I heard one story. Uh, we had a, guy, a few guys up in Calgary around that time that were uh, kind of cronies of Hogan's named uh, David Schultz mm-hmm. and a few guys like that. But uh, there was some apparent story I heard, and I, I never knew whether it was true or false or whether you'd ever heard that story either but there was apparently some kind of uh, episode took place I heard it took place in a hotel or something but Vern and Hogan got into it Vern as you probably know sort of fancied himself as a bit of a shooter you know and uh, that type Mm -hmm. of thing but um, I was told this happened in Denver and uh, it was kind of making the rounds back in our territory around that time but there was some kind of uh, incident in the hotel where Hogan and Byrne got into some kind of, and I'm not sure if it was at the hotel or the dressing room or some kind of a, a parent shoot or something. And uh, Byrne, by all accounts, figured he could kind of, even though Hogan was bigger, Byrne's, you know, considered a pretty decent amateur, you know. So I heard Byrne... Attempted to uh, <laughs> apply some hold to Hogan or something, but I, I was told that Hogan, uh, you know, kind of uh, either reversed it or, you know, kind of handed Burn his lunch or whatever the hell, and uh, that kind of uh, was the catalyst or one of the things that uh, led to Hogan leaving the AWA and going to. Uh, well, the real, the real, the real reason that uh, Hogan left the AWA, there actually there's two reasons. One, Vince McMahon Jr. came touting him, and you know we're going to give Vince credit here because he realized that Hogan was the guy with the charisma, the character, the the popularity that was going to take him to his national uh, expansion. Oh yeah, especially. In, so I think that has to be a given. But the other side oh, yeah, of it was... especially with the uh, exposure he had with the Rocky Three movie. He was kind of, yes. uh, I think, the first wrestler that had that kind of mainstream exposure. I don't, I don't recall anyone else making uh, that big a splash in the movies in the rest, from the wrestling business. You know, they'd had that Paradise Alley and that, but Rocky Three was a huge box office hit, so that was a real vehicle for Hogan to... Uh, right you know, take it to the next level. But the other thing that that, uh, a lot of fans don't realize or a lot of people don't realize is that aside from that, you know, Hogan wanted to be the primary star in the territory. 
And, you know, there's always people that say, well, Vern should have put the title belt on him, and, and Nick Bockwinkle was the champion at the time. Yep. They drew excellent houses against each other, and you throw Bobby Heenan into the mix, and it was absolutely uh, crazy at the arenas because we were drawing 20,000 at the at our old St. Paul Civic Center here in, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul. But uh, Hogan did not need the title at that time. He was going back and forth to Japan, and really what happened was Vern and Hogan got into it over royalty money for T-shirts and that sort of thing, and Vern wanted uh, a part of the money. He also wanted a part of Hulk Hogan's uh, pay for going to Japan, and they got into squabbles over that. And then when Vince McMahon, you know, came in and started throwing out the invitation that he'd put Hogan over as the champion in New York, um, it just kind of led, you know, one thing after the other. And when you mentioned David Schultz, we yeah, had Hogan was... and Schultz in a tremendous program here for several months running against each other. And they, they, they really, they worked good together. They were friends, of course, oh, yeah, they were outside buddies, the ring, long... but they worked well. I think and they one, when Hogan from left, Memphis. yes, they they were down in Memphis together. But when Hogan left to go to New York, the request to Vince was he wanted Schultz to come with him, and Schultz did. Schultz uh, was announced as being suspended from the AWA, but the reality was is that he left, and and him and Hogan, ironically, headlined the very first card that the WWF hosted in the Twin Cities. Uh, when Vince started his move, he had Hogan versus Schultz, which was basically Vern Gagne's main event that he'd had for several months. And that's oh, yeah. where it started to get really confusing for the fans because now all of a sudden this rival group is in town and Hogan and Schultz are both working for it. And, you know, it, that's when the business started to really change. How soon after that, George, did the, uh, like, there was a bunch of dominoes, uh, but not long after that, you know, uh, it's like a, an exodus, uh, Jesse the Body and Mean Gene and uh, Bobby Heenan. Well, it wasn't as, it wasn't as, as uh, quick as a lot of people want to remember. Uh, mean Gene did go pretty much right away. And again, we have to give Hogan credit for that because Hogan suggested Mean Gene to go to the WWF. What you have to remember is, is I don't know about the announcers in the uh, the K Fab era up in Stampede, but I do know that in Minneapolis, we use that as the territory for the AWA. We always had a guy by the name of Marty O'Neill, and Marty yeah, and I was. Heard uh, that, I heard that name for years. Uh, I, right. I can't honestly say I ever heard him, but uh, Marty he was, was very uh, considered an iconic. Uh, one of those announcers. There was a bunch of them, yep. like Gordon Soley and Marty O'Neill, very and, much uh, so. A couple of others that. Everyone spoke very uh, highly of you know. I I, I never did uh, hear either one of them, but uh, you know, the, the, uh, Marty O'Neill was a very uh, familiar name, sort of like a Ben Scully or a Mel Allen mm-hmm. or some such thing. Where you know, everyone in the business knew of him being the AWA uh, TV commentator, or whatever you know. Well, the thing with Marty is that he was very low key. He knew his he knew his job. He he promoted the matches, but he let the boys put themselves over on the interviews, and he didn't attempt to interrupt them or anything like that. But <clears throat> Mean Gene was a little bit different. He was more of the 
the showman type, he I always referred to him as more of a carnival barker type uh, announcer. And as Gene progressed in the in the job, he started to become part of the act where he would react to the wrestlers by asking them a question and, and challenging their answer or giving them the giving them the look and the eyes and and Gene became very much part of the show, which was a lot different than what Marty did, who preferred to be more in the background. And Hogan wanted Okerlund to come with him, and he thought that that would be a good mix for Vince McMahon, which indeed yeah. it was, because McMahon needed that, that showmanship uh, on his show. So that's how Mean Gene fit into the picture. He left right yeah. away, and then Schultz and Hogan, and then eventually we did lose Jesse uh, Ventura, and I think Vince realized that was a good program because he wanted to build it up as an opponent for Hogan along the way. But unfortunately, as uh, a little bit of time elapsed, uh, Jesse uh, had to kind of slow down and eventually get out of the business due to a blood clot problem, and, and uh, that kind of yeah, derailed that. I can barely, you know, I can barely recall Jesse doing much wrestling in WWE. I you know, my my only recollection of him was really is the uh, kind of the Vince Mc, and Vince McMahon was the announcer at that time too. Mm-hmm. But he'd always sort of be sort of making those smug put downs of uh, McMahon or whatever. You know, he always kind of you know being sort of like a sem and and Vince at that time was more of a straight or maybe more of a face type commentator, and Jesse would kind of make the uh, kind of disparaging sort of sarcastic put-downs, you know, like he, that, that was kind of my my only re- recollection of Jesse even as a worker. Yeah, I was very good in that role. Yeah, very good in uh, that, that that all was uh, you know, kind of uh, obviously a huge part of the uh, you know, the WWE's uh, rise, you know, certainly um I know my dad sent a number of guys or a number of guys were <laughs> hijacked or taken from our promotion but uh, but yeah AWA I think was uh, really the uh you know the cornerstone of the uh, WWE's uh talent base back in the mid 80s when they really uh took off you know with Hogan and and, well, I think uh, the magic question has always been, Bruce, is if Vince McMahon would not have had Hulk Hogan immediately, would he have been able to do the things that he did as quickly as he did? And, you know, that's a debate question, but the matter of fact is I, I, I Hogan was the key not, guy. You know, Hogan was, uh, was the key guy. Oh, I, I think it was critical that they, you know, it was like the old, you know, the back in the day the AFL you know they needed like a Joe Namath to uh, mm-hmm. you know establish them or the W World Hockey Association they needed Bobby Hull or something but Hogan was uh, about as big a name as there was in the business you know he's you know because of the movie and just because of his charisma and his look and all the other you know I, I honestly can't think of anyone that would have uh, had that impact, you know, even guys well, like Well, the other Blair thing or... that Vince McMahon was doing at that time is, 
you know, Hogan had the muscle look. I mean, obviously he, he was, uh, you know, the tan, the six foot oh, yeah, eight, whatever they build him at, and the blonde hair. And, and that was all yeah. something that was changing the mindset of the wrestling fan. But that was the perfect image for what McMahon wanted to do. But, you know, when you talk about Hogan being a key guy like that, you know, you and I both know that back in the territory days, and you kind of alluded to this, Every territory had stars that were the main, the main stars, the mainstays, whatever you want to call them, where they were the ones that the promotion could always go to to draw a good house. And, you know, oh, yeah. the AWA, we had yeah. obviously Vern Gagne. I mean, anything can be said about Vern, whether you agree or disagree with how he promoted or how he didn't do things. The bottom line was is that when Vern was on a wrestling card, there were an extra three, 4,000 people there. It was just that oh, simple. Yeah, Vern was, and, uh, he was uh, an icon, you know. He, uh, yes. You know, he, he had, you know, and, and to, to his credit, you know, uh, one of the things my dad seemed to like about Vern's approach, was it was uh, pretty amateur-based. Like, mm-hmm. most of the guys, like Vern was a pretty legit amateur and, he seemed to always uh, be uh, featuring guys like, uh, you know, himself or Billy Robinson or uh, some of those other guys that were pretty uh, legit wrestlers, you know, amateur class, you know, Olympic-style wrestlers. And um, I think that, you well, know, that, that engendered a lot of respect. Yeah. You know, the fans, I think, uh, it wasn't... Uh, not, and uh, you know, I think Vern's territory was it was pretty serious. I don't recall too many Jack Pfeffer type uh, episodes, or they they were uh, you know not big on you know the gimmicks and the tar and feather matches. And the, the, not uh, at all. You know, and, and they were uh, very well respected within the business for that. You know, I, I remember uh, you know. It wasn't a place where, uh, like, say, the Sheik's territory, there was a lot of, you know, gratuitous violence and blade jobs and, you know, a lot of the extremism and crap. But I don't recall, you know, uh, just from what I heard, you know, and and uh, wow. but other wrestlers told me that there was, wasn't a hell of a lot of the real, you know, far-out stuff. I don't think they had that many cage matches or barbed wire matches or, uh, you know, tar and feather matches. <laughs> well, well I, think, I think the thing that Vern did the best was that he wanted uh, most of the guys on his cards to be wrestlers first, characters second. And that's what the fans bought into, and it was successful. And, you know, long even before Vern took over the AWA or started the AWA in 1960, uh, he had worked for the Minneapolis office for the 10 years previous to that, and that's the way the territory was run when it was under the uh, NWA umbrella at that point in time. It was always a wrestler territory, a character territory second. We had a cage match occasionally, but when there was a match like that, there really was a long storyline and a program that built up to it, and there was a reason for it. Some territories, oh, yeah. like you mentioned, the Sheik in Detroit, he could get away with doing the, the blood matches every week and those type of things, but that's what the fans bought into there. 
Um, it, it, each territory had their own formula. You know, we'd have the crusher, who was probably the least wrestler of our territory, but the crusher was our Hulk Hogan of the 60s and 70s. And you oh, yeah, he had some charisma. You know, yeah, uh, you know I, remember, uh, I remember him working our territory in the late mm-hmm. 50s, old Reggie Lasowski, and yes. he was tag team with you know, a guy named Stan Halleck, but he was called Lasowski Brothers and uh, later became Stan Nielsen, you know. And, uh, right. but, uh, but, yeah, he, he, he had a you know, pretty, uh, pretty good charisma, old Reggie, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he was a classic uh, like uh, amateur-style wrestler, but he still came across as, uh, you know, pretty tough, uh, you know, blue-collar type, ass-kicker type guy. You know, he wasn't like... Uh, you know, some kind of Latter-day version of the Sheik or, uh, you know, one of those Gordas George types. Or he, he was pretty, you know, had, had the, the brush cut. And uh, I would think in that environment, you know, the Midwest there, which is sort of, you know, uh, working class people and all like that, he probably would have, uh, you know, and I think the same with old Bruiser. I think they hooked up later, old Dick Affliss or whatever. That, mm-hmm. But uh, but they were they were perceived to be pretty, uh, you know, uh, hardcore uh, blue collar ass kicker type guys. From what I heard, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, too gimmicky or there wasn't too many uh, artificial additives to them, you know. And um, the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser actually got uh, some of his early training in the in the early 50s from Vern Gagne and Joe Pazendak. And oh, yeah, Bruiser I remember that was, name, you know. That, yeah. my, my dad worked uh, the uh, Minneapolis territory in a, a little bit in the late 40s there when he was just kind of getting – but I remember him – uh, there's a guy named Tony Stecker, and you know, I think Tony was the Wall- promoter back in the fifties. Yeah, and uh, Wally Carbo was kind of part of it back in even that mm-hmm. uh, that far back. And uh, my dad, I, that was there was a couple of policemen. My dad told me one of which was Pazendak, who was kind of like. The, and back in those days, my dad told me most of the promoters had these so-called policemen were right. they were kind of old half shooter types including calgary uh you know everyone had to sort of go through the uh dungeon yep. type places uh, my dad had guys like himself and gordianko and uh luther Lindsay and some of them you know but peasant uh, right. was the resident uh policeman and i remember my dad told me another guy named Butch Levy who was supposed to be... Oh, definitely Butch Levy was uh, was considered uh, kind of the policeman that you're referring to, yes. And my dad would tell me that, uh, you know, the, anyone who wanted to uh, kind of uh, get into the business back in those days, they had to uh, kind of... Uh, go into the gym with guys like Pazendak and Butch Levy and, uh, you know... Uh, they would have their metal tested, you know, see if they, mm-hmm. and which, which basically meant getting stretched or getting, uh, you know, kind of roughed up and uh, all this other, you know, and, you know, but it was kind of part of the dues paying back, back in those days. And I remember my, my dad told me that, uh, I think my dad knew Vern back in those days. My dad told me he worked with Vern back in the late forties and Vern was, 
just coming out of the amateurs at many Minnesota, you know, he had been kind of uh, amateur champion or NCAA somewhere in there. There there was kind of a group of those amateurs. You probably know some of them, like Bob Geigel, who was, I think, oh, out yeah. of Iowa and old, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, there was another guy, um, a couple of others, I think Leo Namalini, who was more of a football Leo player. Leo Namalini was one of them too, yes. Out of uh, University of Minnesota, and then uh, there was a couple of others. And uh, But... They all had pretty good. Dick Hutton was another one, I think, out of Oklahoma, who was, mm-hmm. you know, pretty. Uh, they were all like national amateur champion, that type of thing. And Vern was part of that. Uh, and but it's interesting to like back back in those days, the uh, it was kind of the uh, dues paying. You had to go through these. Uh, almost every uh, territory had those what they used to call policemen or pistols or, or whatever, you know, and there, Sam Muchnick would have had a couple of them that were kind of guys that you had to go through. And my dad told me that there's guys like in Ohio, like Ruffy Silverstein and some of those guys that Al Haft would have. And Toots Mont had a bunch of them down in uh, New York when my dad was in there in 45, 46, uh, you know, but... But it, it was uh, a different uh, era back then, and I'm sure there was a few. Johnny probably knows a few of the ones in Texas. I remember my dad told me there was a, a few old shooters that, you know, he had to kind of, like the Rubrites and some of the uh, the other old, uh, you know, crowbars, Danny Pletches, and some of them that you had to, uh, you know, like a three-headed dog at the gates of hell, you had to kind of. Go through the Danny Fletcher's worked for Vern for a time too. Yeah, another one. He was up here with old Mike DiBiase, uh, who was, uh-huh. I think, pretty pretty legit amateur too. Old Iron Mike, is it, you know. But yes. I remember uh, you'd run into those guys. I was pretty young back then, but um, most of those guys were pretty. You know, another one was Bill Miller out of Ohio, pretty tough, big bastard, and I think Carl Gotch was coming around at that time, but. You know, anyone who was in the business, uh, I'm sure Johnny probably knows some of those names. Uh, those those are all guys that, uh, you know, were pretty uh, pretty tough, you know, the type of guys you didn't take liberties with or you kind of, uh, you know, uh, knew your, you know, they might test you, you know, and that was, that was sort of the... Uh, the way it was back then, you know, which is, uh, you know, gives you some perspective about the uh, the way the business was perceived back in in those days, you know. And but, uh, yeah, Minneapolis for sure was one of those. I think Minneapolis and uh, Leroy McGurk was another one who was pretty old school or had that amateur wrestling kind of uh, mindset. You know, you'd have guys like Danny Hodge and. Um, some of those others that were all, you know, pretty amateur-based, you know, half-shooter types that would, uh, you know, you, you had to kind of go through the uh, dues paying with those guys before you ever got in the ring back in those days, you know. And, um, but, but, yeah, that, that, that's uh, interesting to just hear some of those names that you were telling me, you know, because uh, it gives you some perspective about, uh, the whole thing. 
Hey George, let me let me step in and ask a question, and this may be a, a modern knowledge to everybody out there, but I always think it's an interesting story. Uh, uh-huh. uh, give us give us your perspective and and your way of the of the belt and Stan Hansen and and uh, the AWA belt. Well, you know that's something that uh, amongst modern fans and fans since that time period have tossed around and have their own viewpoints and like most stories I think things get stretched out and and colored and everything along the way but the way the story went and this is as factual as I can get from hearing it from Nick Bockwinkel hearing it from Vern Gagne back in the day and hearing it from Greg Gagne this is how it went down Uh, Hanson was working for Vern as his AWA champion before I go any farther with that, I want to make the comment that both Nick Bockwinkle and Jack Lanza had advised Vern that it's not a good idea to put the belt on Hanson because Hanson's difficult to work with. Now, Hanson was a hell of a draw. I mean, there is no way to get around that. The man was money. And Vern was in a fight at that point with the WWF, and this is 1985-86, it's been three years since McMahon took, started the expansion, so Vern is doing things a little bit differently than what probably he would have done three or four or five or ten years earlier. But he put the title on Hanson. At the time, Hanson also had a working agreement uh, with Japan, Giant Baba, and Hanson was making a lot of his money over in Japan. We have to give him that. He was a huge draw over there, and Hanson... I think what the problem was is that he considered Baba to be his boss rather than Vern. But I guess the bottom line is my theory, and this is just my opinion, okay, whoever promoter you were working with at the time, that guy was your boss. That's the way I would look at it. But here's what happened in Denver with regard to that belt. Hanson was going to be leaving for Japan for about an eight-week tour. Vern decided, and he's the promoter, he's the owner of the AWA, he decided that night in Denver that he wanted Stan to drop the belt to Bockwinkle. Bockwinkle go over, and Stan goes and takes care of his Japan commitments, and then when he comes back they can talk of rematches, whatever. Well, what happened was in the dressing room that night, Vern advised Hanson that he wanted him to drop the belt. Hanson and Vern got into it because Hanson said, I am billed over in Japan right now as the AWA champion, as defending the championship over there. I'm not going to do it. Vern said, you're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. Hanson said, basically, F you. He left with the belt, left the arena. Now, here's where it gets tricky, guys. You know, I look at Vern Gagne at this point, and I say whether or not that was a wise move or not isn't the question. The question was he had an auditorium filled with people waiting to see a title match, and his champion just left the building. Now, whether he should have went out and had a tournament match or or announced a tournament or any number of things, in hindsight, that's all good theory, because in hindsight, it's always 2020. But as a business owner, he had to make an an, uh, impromptu decision right there. What Vern did was he went out to the audience, or Gene Reed actually went out for Vern, the promoter in Denver, but made the announcement 
that Stan Hansen had left the building refusing to wrestle Nick Bockwinkle, and therefore, by default, Bockwinkle is the new AWA champion. And that's the way they left it. They announced it on TV that Hansen refused to defend. They didn't go into the, to the dropping the title stuff, of course. Hansen took off to Japan with the belt. He did wrestle over there, and he was recognized as the champion, or at least billed as the AWA champion. Vern requested that he get his belt back. He asked Stan to send it back. When Stan sent it back to him, before he did, he drove, it over, he drove over it with his pickup truck. And this is in Stan Hansen's book, this account here. And actually, if you, if you want to read a good book, Scott Teal has, has done a great book with Stan Hansen. And Stan actually <laughs> apologizes for this move in the book. But he says he drove over it, he sent it back to Vern, basically with a, you know, here's your effing belt. And the belt is now damaged. Bachwinkle was the champion, Hansen was done. Now that's the way the whole story went down. And anybody that wants to come up with any other angle, whether or not Hanson was right or wrong to have his allegiance to Baba, I guess I, I just I don't look at it that way because I figure he could have dropped the title here in the AWA, yeah. and he could have still went a, over to Japan, and nobody would have known the difference. But Hanson yeah, wasn't going to do it. Kind of uh, reminiscent in some ways of the... Uh, ill-fated Montreal screwdriver bullshit with Brett and uh, mm-hmm. Sean and, you know, the uh, so. extenuating, you know, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's uh, you too know, I, I think... suspect egos, uh, that's the other part of it, you know, egos and agendas and stuff kind of come into it, you know, but, uh, well, you know, the one thing I always looked at, Bruce, is, and I understood the wrestling business back in the day. Any promoter was, was, was going to do what was good for business, not to, not to quote a modern uh, WWE phrase, but they were going to do what was best for business in their territory. And, you know, the, I always looked at it that every wrestler who worked for the promoter, in this case, if you work for Vern Gagne, Vern was the boss, you were the employee, and you did what the you did what the boss asked you to do, and you oh, yeah. did what was best for the business. And in this situation, Hanson wasn't going to do it. Now, Hanson was known to do these type of things. And again, let's not forget that Hanson could draw. He was a heck of a draw. So was Bruiser Brody, King Kong Brody. Oh, it was but the same. I you can't tell Brody the boss and... you're not going to do what they tell you to do. I worked for I worked for thirty years in in banking. And I tell you right now, I could never go in and tell my boss I wasn't going to do what they were asking me to do, unless it was illegal. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you go to work, they give you a check, you do what they ask you to do. And that's oh, yeah. why I never sided with Hanson on this deal, because it was simply wrong. You, you had to do what the boss was asking you to do on that given night. I remember my dad used to refer to it. It was actually more common than people think. You know, or oh, yeah. guys would not want to drop the strap before they left. Or my dad always used to refer to it as uh, ushering the skunk out of the parlor. 
Well, you know, let me give you another example to to spray before it uh, dropped the strap, you know, so you had to kind of uh, appease or stroke him a bit, you know. But, yeah, that, that, uh, that, as you probably know, that was part of the uh, deal with with Brody, too, you know, from what I've been told, you know, the guys who, you know, you get these guys and you get, you know, a certain amount of... uh, ego or, you know, just kind of, you know, and uh, you get these impasses and then uh, how how you handle it is kind of what renders you a good promoter or a diplomat or or otherwise, you know. Well, Brody was in a program here in Minneapolis against Jerry Blackwell, and uh, Brody was managed by Sheik Adnan Casey, and they had turned on Blackwell. Blackwell became the baby face. Now, they were doing really well. They had a, a good program going. And at one particular show at the St. Paul Civic Center, right before the main event was to go on and Brody is to go out, Brody told Vern he's not going out. He wants more money. Now, I, I, I know that stuff happened, but I'm telling you, that's not the time to do it because you can't hold up the promoter. You can't hold up the boss because you got your crowd out there. And this is the type of stuff that Brody did. I want to give you another example of, of a, a Vern Gagne situation where you could describe whether it's wrong or right. It's, it's all in your own opinion. But back, and again, ironically, this was in Denver. You go back to 1977, and we had Don Jardine working here as the super Spoiler, destroyer. Yeah. Yes, he was using the Super Destroyer name here. He had been here about a year, and Vern told him in Denver, "I want you. To, we're going to do. We're going to unmask you tonight. We've kind of run the course. We want to. We'll unmask you. We'll do something different. Go forward." Jardine flatly refused, using the using the scenario that the mask is my business and you're going to ruin my my career. But here's where that doesn't hold water. Everybody in wrestling knew that Jardine was both the spoiler and the super destroyer, and he had been unmasked in every other territory. In fact, he wrestled out in New York without his mask as the spoiler in the early 70s. So that wasn't valid, but Jardine refused and left. Left the frickin' building. And they just announced that the, the destroyer, the super destroyer was uh, left and that he was gone. That was it. And then we brought in new Super Destroyers. We had Bob Remus, who came in as Super Destroyer Mark II. Sergeant Tool, Slaughter, yeah. Sergeant Slaughter. And that was a Vern trainee. And Vern basically uh, got a hold of Slaughter or Bob Remus, and he said, hey, I need a guy quick. You're big. I want to put a mask on you. Here's what we're going to do. But this was another time where Jardine was trying to run, and Jardine was a heck of a talent, a great draw, a great talker, a great worker. But yeah, he was trying to tell the boss a, what know, he was going to do. Yeah, he had a bit of that uh, kind of, you know, um, streak in him, though, Jardine, you know. Yeah, let, be... Hey, and, and Bruce, let, let, let's just say, again, and, 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 and George, I agree with you. There's times to do stuff and there's times to not. But now at the same token, I just want to let – I just want you to imagine – the era you're talking about and when all those things happened, whether it was with Don Jardine or Brody or Hanson mm-hmm. or any of these guys, 
that era was sort of an era of change and times of change. Now, I can give you, like you said, it's everybody's perspective and different ways to look at it, but you can look at all those different guys, and, and if you know the guys, they weren't really trying for glory or they weren't trying. They were trying to increase the pocketbook, really, of everybody on the card. So, oh, I understand and, that. And, totally. and, and, and I think they're just a prelude of, of, hey, let's take basketball for instance. King James left Cleveland, went to Florida, now he's going back to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. It's, just part, it's just part of the cycle, I think, of athletics and sports and money involved in those two things in our country. And, and I've got to bring a guest on real quick right now, Bruce and, and George. I want to bring a guest on. Some people will know him as Colonel De Beers, other people from way back will know him as Ed Wiskowski. That's how I know him, as Ed Wiskowski is going to come on the air on Heartbeat Radio right now, Powerhouse Radio, with Bruce Hart and George Shire. Ed, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Happy hour started about an hour ago. I was waiting on you fuckers to call. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, good. Great to hear your voice, and I, I I met you down in Portland uh, back in the day. But I, I know my brother Keith always uh, he was on some tour with you. He always spoke, uh, you know, very uh, highly of you. Always, you know, as a just an you awesome. Know, he, he's you know he had nothing but and Brett Brett as well. They always spoke uh, like you were. Uh, so yeah, and uh, yeah, I just like to. Throw in my two bits worth. I, you know, everything I've seen of you in the ring was uh, first class, and uh, I've never heard anyone say anything but good things about uh, Ed Wiskowski. So it's, I'm I'm honored that you uh, saw fit to come on the program. You know, I uh, have nothing but the highest uh, praise for you. You know, and uh, thank you for uh, coming on. Oh, that's no problem. You know, uh, first number one, you don't have to blow smoke up my ass. No, I, I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I consider it. The, but yeah, I, uh, I, I, quite honestly, I've never, I've not heard anyone say anything bad. I'm sure Johnny would uh, concur. You know, certain people you hear a lot of guys saying oh, he's an asshole or he's this or that. But, uh, but um, yeah, I've never heard anyone uh, saying oh, Wiskowski, he's this or that. You know, most times yeah. it's. Uh, Good guy, you know, good worker, good team player, that type my, of thing. So. My, my my memory of Ed Wiskowski is coming to the Bomber Motel when we were having a barbecue and throwing a Frisbee with us out in the middle of the Bomber on the grass. Now, that's my memories of, of Ed Wiskowski <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. But, you know, I, my memories go back to uh, your brother Keith. And, you know, when he, when he came in to work a few shots, I think he'd been in Hawaii, but there yeah. was no – the bomber, and so uh, the guy that owned the bomber gave him a tent, and he slept out in the middle of the uh, of the field there, right by the bomber itself, and <laughs> slept there for one night. And I said, Jesus Christ! I said, I got two beds. Come on in here. And then he brought in all kinds of pussy. So that was oh, it, maybe, that's, both, maybe that's why he speaks so highly of you. Then maybe, maybe. <laughs> I gave yeah. him keep outside and and plus. I know he was. Uh, I know Keith was always. Uh, he was always trying to get my dad to bring you up here. It never quite happened, you know. But uh, I remember for the longest time, whenever my dad was 
looking for a, a face or a heel, you know, and Keith is always saying, uh, you should get Ed Wiskowski up here, you know, he's this is long before he did the Colonel De Beers, you know, but Keith was always uh I think yeah, they were calling you the Polish prince or some such thing, you know, but but yeah, Keith was always uh extolling your virtues, you know, and telling Stu, you know, Wiskowski'd be a hell of a hand and all like that. But for whatever reason it never quite happened. But and I might add he was always saying similar things about uh Johnny Mantel too, you know, he had kinda crossed paths with Johnny in Japan, I guess, him and Brett back in uh early 80s or some such thing, you know, so, but, but, yeah, so what are you doing these days, Ed? I'm just laying on my ass in Arizona. Oh. <laughs> oh don't, uh, uh, really don't do much. I get up, I golf in the morning, go to the gym, play a little pickleball, come home, get some lunch, go to the pool, uh, that's it. You're, the. Uh, you sound like you're sound of mind, and you know you sound like you're, uh, you know, uh, in a lot better shape than some of the uh, some of our peers. Well, I like to I like to think I am. Yeah, you sound yeah. You don't sound like you're uh, <laughs> slipping or anything. You know, you sound pretty uh, coherent and all like that. So that's cool. Yeah. Glad to hear that. You know. Happy or into hour. some of these Jimmy Snookas and some of them, you know. <laughs> it's kinda like uh lunatic Jimmy. fringe or whatever, you know, you don't you know, not sure where they're going or what they're saying. <laughs> you know, I, whether I, it's I, you or them, you know, and all like that, you know. So. I haven't seen Jimmy in three or four years. I don't know how he's doing. I I assume he's still in the northeast, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen him for a few years. The last time I saw him was at uh, like one of those cauliflower alley things, <laughs> and uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, Stu was still alive down there, and uh, Jimmy Snook was doing like a really bizarre impersonation of Stu. And Stu didn't. Stu wasn't sure if he was impersonating him or whether he talked like that for real. <laughs> it was like a very surrealistic conversation, and Jimmy Snook was going. Ugh, uh, about the same. I don't think uh, either either one of them realized. Uh, I don't, I don't, but I remember. Uh, I think Brett and I were observing this and laughing our asses off, and uh, it, was, it was kind of uh, the highlight of the CAC for us, you know. But uh, the last, but yeah, uh, I think I got a. I think I still got a photo of. See, Stu was in a wheelchair, and I think your sister was there. Oh yeah, I think I may have been down there at that time. I, uh, yeah, I don't know if you maybe were the there. last year Stu was down there. Uh, maybe the last year before he passed away, maybe uh, right. about ten, ten or so years ago, something like that. Yeah, and Stu wasn't yeah in the wheelchair, and uh, but that, that may have been uh, when uh, Superfly was down there. I, I can't remember, you know, but uh, I don't either. But yeah. So, uh, I'd comment on, oh, I don't know who was on before me, and you were talking about, uh, you know, Vern Gagne and Jardine and Brody and and uh, those folks. Uh, number one, I mean, you know, the whole, the whole era there and the change where WWE became 
you know, entrenched is really an interesting part of history because Hogan had had already worked for uh, McMahon Sr. and, uh, you know, had had his run, but he was happy in Minnesota because, hey, it was a three- or four-day, you know, a gig, and you had time. You know, in New York at that time, uh, you were chasing your own ass working eight days a week. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, they had some long runs and a lot of uh, fly-in and... uh, you know, it was, uh, and Hogan really exactly. Minneapolis, and my understanding was he went to Bird and he said, "Hey, he said I got an offer from uh, Vince Jr., uh, but I want to stay here if you'll put the belt on me." And of course, Vince wanted to, you know, keep changing the belt between him and Bockwinkle. So I yeah, mean, I, I had sort of heard the same, you know, and it was uh, like, you know. Uh, at some point, there was an impasse with Byrne and and Hulk, and uh, kind of uh, Hogan finally went with Vince, and it had an incredible impact on the uh, on the whole future of the business. You know, it kind of everything hey. sort of. Uh, you know, guys, I, I'd like to throw a comment in here um, regarding Byrne putting the belt on Hogan. You know, we talked earlier about Vern Gagne's ego which most wrestlers had and that was the main problem with Vern is he was not going to put the belt on Hogan because the perception was is that Hogan would be more popular a champion than Vern Gagne had been and you have to remember that was probably a lot of the reason Vern didn't want to do that and he kept it on Nick because Nick was always loyal to him and Nick could put you know put butts on the seats as well and again we had Heenan in the equation but that was the reason. Uh, Vern just didn't want a babyface as champion because of the perception that that champion could be popular than Vern Gagne. Think about that, oh. and that—that that is oh, really I, what it was. Amen. Yeah. Amen to what you're saying. Well, let's also add to that fact that that may be very true, and, and Vern didn't want anybody to be more popular than him, but from the boys' perspective and putting those butts in seats and filling it up as much as you can so the guys from the bottom match to the top match could make more money, uh, sometimes, and I think you've seen that, you know, and and, and as much as, as, as you know, we want to say things about what Vince has done and, and what, how he's done it, that, that got dropped, and whatever it was, it was going to make the most money prevailed. You know, it was sort of like, that Again, the nice. territory days, and, and Ed, Ed will back me up here. When you came to Dallas, you knew the Von Erichs were going to win. When you went to the when you went to the Gulf Coast, you knew the Fields or the or the Fullers or somebody like that. You knew the Jarretts in Tennessee. You knew these Grams in Florida. Step, you knew, you knew these areas where the top where the top guy Calgary, was going to be the top yeah. guy. The Calgary, the Hearts. Well, you know, the and other I, thing too, saying, guys. Yeah. The other thing, too, guys, is that Vern Gagne, like a lot of the old-school promoters, didn't give Vince McMahon a snowball's chance in hell of pulling off what he attempted to do. They didn't believe that he could. They were stubborn in their ways of promoting. They didn't see the territorial system failing. And then the other side of it is is that had all these old-school promoters been able to get together, work together, and put their egos aside, they could have at least derailed McMahon for a while. 
they didn't you, want to you, do that. They were interested. You hit the in nail themselves. on the head. That, that was a big and, part and, of it, and, and it's it's never uh, you know. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that, Ed, because uh, that was that was the other big cause and the catalyst of it all was most of those assholes that were in the NWA back at that time were. Uh, they're all screwing each other, double crossing each other, pulling uh, a champion out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember my dad got to the point with, uh, you know, the brass of the NWA where he's, you know, for years he had brought up Dory or Harley and Terry and those guys, and they did a hell of a job. But I remember they uh, started getting cute, and uh, he was supposed to bring up Harley for the belt, and they called him up about three weeks before his big show and said that Harley was doing some angle with Dusty down in uh, Florida or some bullshit. So my dad actually at that point said, screw the NWA, and he started bringing Nick Bockwinkle up, who was the AWA. Right. And, uh, and it sort of went that way. That was the erosion of the NWA. And if those guys had uh, stuck together and and they didn't, they were all uh, you know uh, well, screwing and, and, and each Bruce, other, and, 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 Bruce, and it all and Bruce, kind you've of. Heard me, and you've heard me tell this little story, and 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 George, I don't know if you know a lot about the world class days here in Dallas, but I know when my brother Kenny here was booking, and they syndicated the show, and the show was going all over the country on syndicated. Mm-hmm. And each week the numbers were going up to 86 markets, to 108 markets, to 122 markets. Whatever the numbers were going up that ladder, I'll never forget the day when Kenny came home back up here to Montec County, Bowie, Texas, and said he had his meeting with Fritz that day and told Fritz it was time we had to go nationwide. And Fritz mm-hmm. thought about it for a few minutes, and Fritz said, ah, this is, Texas is big enough for my boys. Of course, he'd already lost David. Right? right, he'd already lost David. He'd already lost the oldest son. He'd already lost David, and he thought that Dallas, Texas, was big enough for carrying Kevin to keep the banner going for years to come. Instead of seeing the writing on the wall and what Vince was doing, so there was a lot of those points in history. And, and Ed said it a minute ago about a really interesting time in this business and the history of this business because there was those opportunities or those shots that had the chip fallen to the left and. To Instead of to the right, or had gone uh, in reverse instead of forward, whatever the circumstances may be, that we all may be talking a different tune today. But they did, hey, and that's just, and that's how the chips fell. Well, that's and that was the Vern Gagne. The whole Vern Gagne thing was is that he honestly did not believe. I talked to Greg Gagne many, many times about this, and Greg says that he tried to change Vern's mind. But you know, Greg, we have to give credit to. Or right or wrong, he is very devoted to his father, even to this minute we speak. And Greg said, he told Vern, you've got to change, we got to do this, and Vern wasn't going to do it. So Greg went along with it. And Greg was smart enough to see that it was going to change the way it did. But McMahon, he just sat back and watched all the old school promoters self-destruct. After, of yep. course, taking some of their talent, Vince also did things like getting the time slots on TV, taking it away from the established promoters. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on, but oh, Vern Gagne uh, just did not see the train coming down the track. He didn't want to see it. One of the other factors that is often never mentioned is uh, you, you guys probably remember old Jim Barnett, who was the mm-hmm. 
but it, those guys kind of, from what I heard, uh, pulled the rug out from under Barnett in uh, Atlanta, and and he yeah. was like uh, Barnett. Uh, he had incredible polar stroke. That was his strength with the TV people, and uh, Barnett was uh, rightfully pissed. And when he went to Vince, you know, he he delivered all kinds of those huge TV, uh, you know, things. And that that was one of the things that really uh, is is often not mentioned. But Barnett uh, had huge stroke with the TV industry, you know, and um, that, that I think was he sort of, of saw the sort of saw the writing on the wall with the NWA, sort of, you know. Uh, to me, they sort of folded like a lot of cheap banks did during a banking problem. You oh, know, they, they were sort all, of, you know, and I remember my dad was one of the first, uh, unfortunately, to pull out. And um, I think back in the Sam Muchnick days or whatever, there were, you know, uh, there was relative uh, unity or, the, you know, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I remember being down at a few of those. NWA conventions, which were all sort of backstabbing and ass kissing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, nonetheless, you know, they, uh, for whatever reason, they, they saw fit to stay together. But you know, uh, I think if uh, I would say if Vince McMahon Jr. had tried his, you know, whatever back in say the early 70s or the 60s, uh, it's a lot less likely that it would have ever happened because there was well uh, we didn't have we didn't have to worry about such a thing happening back then though because we didn't have the cable television we didn't have the pay-per-view capabilities that was something that vince mcmahon jr saw as a as a future but you know you got to remember guys like ole anderson and jerry jarrett and even Vern Gagne himself had had an idea that that could be possible they just didn't want to go outside of their territories to uh, do it and work with anyone else. And oh, yeah, Vern was satisfied a... with drawing 20,000 people at a card in his AWA. My dad, when he was alive, likened it to uh, that movie, The Godfather, where they had the heads of the uh, crime families and all that stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad said, you know, uh, if they had stuck together, but he's, you know... Invariably, they were, uh, even right up to the end, there was, uh, you know, I heard like there was a little mini uh, something or other. I remember Lawler calling my dad back in the mid-80s, and he was at this point now hooked up with Vern, and I'm not sure if he was the AWA champion then or there was some kind of... Yeah, he was. You know, and they were, uh, and some guy named Rob Russin and some... uh, some of Vern's colleagues were trying to get Stu to come on board, and my dad was kind of dubious because, uh, you know, there was so much kind of backstabbing and, you know, all this other type of stuff that he never he never did. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think uh, the gist of what we're saying is that these guys had uh, stuck together when, when it counted, uh, you know, they would have formed a lot more viable uh, opposition. It would have been a hell of a lot harder for Vince Jr. to pull off whatever he did. But they they were all, uh, you know, uh, there was very little cohesion back then. You know, it was, everybody was uh, kind of 
you know, for themselves, and there, there was little or no kind of, uh, you know, anyone helping anyone else. Or well, and the irony other. of it, Bruce, is that years earlier, the the promoters, the old school promoters, the Ganyas, the you know, the Stu Hearts, all of them, Paul Bosch, you name it, Eddie Graham, uh, even Vince Senior, these guys, they did work together and get along. But when it oh, there came was a to certain the time uh, when McMahon was, was taken a... over, then they couldn't work together. Yeah, I remember exactly like uh, you mentioned those names, you know, uh, they weren't saints or anything, you know, but uh, there was sort of a a code of ethics or, you know, uh, you know, they would uh, give somebody their word and, uh, and Sam Muchnick, you know, included, you know, uh, Frank Tunney, uh, Jim Crockett, some of those guys, you know, and uh, their their word meant something, you know, to them, mm-hmm. you know, like if they, Dory Funk Sr., guys like that, you know, if they uh, promised somebody uh, something, it usually would get done, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was too bad that uh, more of those guys, you know, unfortunately a lot of them had passed on or had gotten out of the business by uh, the uh, 80s or whatever, you know, and um, it wasn't the same, but almost all those names, you know, you mentioned uh, those ones and guys like Don Owens and some of them, you know, and uh, right. There, there was, uh, you know, if, if one of those guys gave you his word, you know, uh, and Vince Senior too, you know, uh, you know, it was usually pretty uh, valid. You know, there wasn't. Uh, well, and by the ask. time that, uh, by the time that Ed De Beers had, or Ed uh, Wiskowski, Colonel De Beers, had come into the AWA, and Ed, um, you could probably attest to this. Um, you, what, you were in the territory in what? Was it 85, 86, something like that? Uh, yeah. And, you know, already by that time, the AWA was really a shell of what its former self was. I mean, uh, we, we just, we, we, Vern was already struggling to keep it going. Yes, yeah, he was. I agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, actually the Colonel De Beers-Jimmy Snuka feud, the program you guys had, that was one of the highlights in those, in those uh, twilight years. And, and Vern had, in 87, he had uh, Playboy Buddy Rose and, and uh, Pretty Boy Doug Summers together. Uh, Doug Summers, God bless him, but at any other time in his career, he wouldn't have been a main eventer for Vern Gagne. But at that time period, he was great with Buddy, and they had an excellent program with the Midnight Rockers. That's what was drawing, if anything, at that time. And then Kurt Hennig. That was you know, that Marty. Was the, that was the, the big stars towards the end there. Yep. You're right. You are so right. And, you know, when, when Hulk Good. Hogan defected and things started to go down from there, there was a good three or four year run where Vern was still outdrawing, and I've got the I got the attendance figures to prove this comment. He was still outdrawing the WWF anytime they came into an AWA city and and promoted a card, and Vern was doing it with guys like the Road Warriors, the Fabulous Ones, Ricky Martel. Uh, he had Stan Hansen. He had Jerry Blackwell. 
he had the Sheik working with him at Sheik Adnan Casey. And uh, the Stomper came in, uh, Archie Goldie. Uh, you know, Bruiser Brody was in. Vern was kicking McMahon's butt on the attendance side. And Vince was using Vern's own guys of, of Hogan, Schultz, Jesse, uh, other guys that had worked for Vern. And the attendance didn't drop until after we got to about 86, 87. Then it started to go south. What, what was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back in your estimation, George? Or, and, you know, I, I often wondered, you know, because as I said before, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, AWA was, it was like the, uh, the big, the big uh, promotion in the business, you know, and, uh, I never, I never ever quite heard exactly what what it was that you know whether burned uh, whether there's other issues or was the final any... draw the final thing and Ed I, I hope you'll offer a perspective on this because you obviously were working with Vern at the time but one of the final straws that broke the camel's back shall we say was when uh, Kurt Hennig uh, left to go to the WWF. And Kurt had been Vern's champion. Kurt, I believe, went to Vern and told him he was going to leave. And I think they did a match where Bachwinkle won the title. And then Kurt was going to stay, and then he left. And that was pretty much the end of the road. After that, it just became uh, – we, we, were, we were running with minor league – and I, I hate to use the word minor league talent because I have the utmost respect for any wrestler that ever laced up boots – Regardless of what their their status was or where they were on the card, I, I admire them. But we were dealing with talent that weren't main eventers, shall we say. And we that's what was the downfall. The AWA couldn't fill the – they were drawing 300 people from, yeah. you know, 10,000, 20,000 just years earlier. Well, the bar was set pretty high back in the 80s and 70s with the guys, including like Bachwinkle and uh... – and Ed and Martell and uh, Billy Graham and all, all those guys, you know, that that was like, I agree, you know, I, um, I can't remember which guys came in in the uh, late 80s or whatever, you know, but uh, it was a lot of guys that would have never been able to crack the roster in the earlier days, you know, that maybe five years before they would have been lucky to get on the card. Well, they would have been they would have been a preliminary guy at best or, you know, enhancement talent, but nonetheless they were they were decent workers. They just weren't able to put the butts in the seat for the main event. And by the I'm time sure the fans too, were, I'm sure well, the fans and by were. that time too, by the end of the eighties, you know, all of the eighties star or the seventies stars were too old. The crusher was sixty years old. You couldn't rely on him anymore even though he could boost the attendance a slight bit just on name value, but that wasn't going to do it. So, Ed, what's your perspective? You and Snuka were working. You were, a, you know, a big program for us. Well, you know, here's my thing. I think that the Vern's whole downfall was the fact that guys hated him so much and they wanted to see him defeated that they no longer wanted to work for him, they no longer wanted to come in, and they went to McMahon. 
That that's just my opinion. I mean, okay. Could I make a comment to that? Sure. Um, I I I've heard that all the time that you know, there were a lot of guys that hated Vern, and I know there were guys that hated Vern. I I don't dispute what you're saying, but the interesting thing about that is that that was the same perspective that was through the '60s and the '70s. There were always guys that had this or that to say about Vern, yet they wanted to work for him because it was a good territory for the schedule, also the pay, and they wanted to come to the AWA. And here's a guy that I respect more than anybody in this business, Nick Bockwinkle. Nick has told me more than once, he said, I always got along with Vern. You just learn how to work with Vern. And he says, "That's we got along fine. And he says, all these people that have issues with Vern, if they just decide they're going to work for Vern, they'll be fine. He says, that's how come I stayed here, because I got along with him. And you know, Vern and Nick, obviously they got along. Nick so, was a pretty good diplomat, too, though. You know, he's, he's well, I mean, and naturally Nick is getting paid by Vern, and that's the whole thing. And Nick, though, with his talent, in the 70s or even the early 80s, he could have still... Uh, done, you know, wherever he wanted to go, he could have written his own ticket. So, I mean, he decided to stay with Vern because he said, I just learned how to get along with him. Well, when he Nick got a hold, died down. Nick told me this. Nick told me this one time. I've heard people say that Billy Robinson was tough to work with. And Nick says, I used to go into the dressing room. I'd say, Billy, what are we going to do tonight? What do you want to do? And And Nick says, I, I just let Billy tell me what we're going to do. We go out and we put on a show. So, and if anybody ever saw Nick and Billy's matches, they were clinics. They were beautiful. But a lot of people didn't like working with Billy. No, I I, I think Nick was a very savvy, uh, you know, uh, diplomat. He, he, he knew how to uh, get along with his uh, with the promoters and with his uh, peers as well, you know, a lot of other guys unfortunately uh, lacked his diplomacy. I think, you know. Well, and here's a story that has went around for years and years, and Nick has told this to me, and I, I've heard him tell it to others. I have no reason to believe that he'd be lying, but he said that years ago that uh, he was offered the NWA title around the same time that Harley got it. And Nick says, he did the math. He says, I figured out that I can stay in Minneapolis. I can work six months out of the year, you know, three or four days a week, have all this time off. I'm making a good living. And he said, I did the math, and I was making more money than Harley was, and Harley was working 368 days a year because some days he was doing double shots. I, th- I think he's, he's absolutely right. Yes. So Nick says, why would I want to take on Harley's role? And, and you know, to me it made sense. Well, yeah. up, until, up until the time that, uh, you know, uh, Hogan came on the scene, right. the, the champion's job was to make the opponent. That was his job. Very true. Very true. That his job He's really the best jobber in the country because he makes this local guy look so darn good in spite of himself, and he's just yep. a you know 
a breath away from being the world champion. Now, somewhere yep. along the line, that all got changed. And to me, it just seems like it was with the with the, with the Hogan era as champion, where oh, he totally would you know, take 90% of the match and beat the guy anyway. But maybe I'm wrong. That's a great Well, and I mean, when you, look at, when you look at the Hogan era, and then you had guys like Brody and Hanson, and especially the Road Warriors. These guys would come into the ring, the Road Warriors, and they wouldn't sell for anybody. I mean, and they were so unbeatable. They were perceived as unbeatable. They were built as unbeatable. And I don't know. I think eventually that's where the downfall came. How do you, was, how do you uh, have a guy that's so invincible and he's not going to sell any move that his opponent does? The Road Warriors wouldn't sell for Larry Hennig. They wouldn't sell for Rick Martel. They wouldn't sell for anybody when they were here. Yeah, but, yeah, but, when, they, but when they went to Atlanta, they put him in the ring with uh, Stan Hansen and, and uh, uh, Bill Eady, and, and the Road Warriors themselves said they didn't want to ever go back to Atlanta because those two beat him up. <laughs> so, so sometimes, and I understand what you're saying, but sometimes, especially in this business, and Ed and Bruce will back me up on this, especially in this business, Sometimes you have to go to the ring and fight. And if you don't, yeah. then you are going to be walked over and you are going to be stepped on and you are going to be abused. Yeah, I thought that was a, an awesome uh, way to describe it, Ed, uh, uh, being uh, the highest paid jobber in the business. But uh, that, that was exactly what Dory and Terry and Harley, you know. Jack Briscoe, too. Uh, uh, Jack and... Uh, yeah, they they would go around, you know, and uh, that was why all the promoters loved them. You know, they would come up to Calgary and uh, make our guys look like world champions, and they would go to uh, Portland and work with whoever was the champion down there. Then, and uh, that that was uh, what made that you know whole thing. Uh, you know, it was like an incredible era of the seventies for. The NWA World Champions uh, well, did a phenomenal I, I was job. In, I was in Mississippi in 1978 when George Calkin pulled away from the NWA and went with the AWA, and Nick Bockwinkle and the referee at that time, the gentleman with the curly hair, the referee, I can't think of his name right now, they came to Jackson, Mississippi, and Nick wrestled Pork Chops Cash to an hour Broadway and made everybody <laughs> in that building believe that Pork Chops Cash should have been the next champion. Well, you know what the logic was to all of that was that when the champion came to town, the the challenger was going to be there next week and the week after. The champion was coming through, and he may not be back again this year. And so the champion had to put that guy over and make him seem unbeatable, and that's what Harley and Jack and the Funks, they did so well. Nick could do that really well. Nick could go into a match, and you'd be convinced that he – he was the lesser of the two guys in that match because he'd get his he'd get his behind handed to him, but when he walked out of there, he'd done his job. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that, that that was uh, like I actually saw Luthez. You know, he was up here back in the '60s, and he he had a different mantle about him as the champion and everything else, but he was far less inclined to get your guy over though Lou you know he would 
he would still come up and, uh, you know, make your guy look all right. But, uh, but yeah, exactly like you guys said, though, uh, Dory and Harley and uh, Terry and those guys would, uh, they would um, make your guy, uh, they'd give him 90% of the match and they'd be hanging on to the belt by the skin of their teeth by the time the match well, was over. Well, when you mention a guy like Lou Fez, you know, he used to do the same thing back in the era you know, back in 1957, when Lou wanted to be relieved of the belt for a while, he told Muchnick the only person he'd lose it to would be Dick Hutton. Yeah, it was an amateur, you know, he, yeah. He hand chose his opponent. He wasn't going to lose it to anybody else. And oh, then, like you know, history shows that Hutton Valentine. didn't draw very well as a champion. Hey, so so I just got to interact something. I got to go back to a conversation a few minutes ago by you saying that Lou Fez was calling out that, uh, my my next uh, the next champion is going to be Dick Hutton because that's who I want to give it to. So was that a lot different from the times when maybe Brody or Hanson or somebody had a, had had a dispute over what to do in the ring? Was there much difference? I in think that? it was probably the, the same thing. Yeah, to yeah, a degree. I, I, think I, with... think, I think time. I think time and perspective because of that time when it happens makes things look a little different. But really, you know, it's all part of the progression of. Again, uh, athletics and money and and uh, 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 being the star and all that—it's just been sort of a progression, whether it's good or bad. I mean, only history will be able to tell us whether it's all been good or bad. Um, um, but but I think well, all I, those I were... think I think with Lou Fez's, uh mentality is that he wasn't going to, he, and he admitted this—he wasn't going to lose the championship to someone he didn't consider a wrestler. We all know Dick yeah. Hutton had the great amateur background from Oklahoma and everything. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. going to lose the title to a Buddy Rogers or somebody like that because he considered them a showman. Now, whether that yeah. was right or wrong, I think it was as wrong as the Brody thing or the Hanson thing, you know, 30 years later. But that's the way it was. It was just, Fez thought he was going to lose to a wrestler, not a, not a showman. It was as simple as that. What yeah. uh, what was the Hanson thing? Maybe I because I joined this late. Well, we were talking about the uh, the night in Denver when Vern asked uh, or told Hanson that he was going to drop the AWA belt to Nick Bockwinkel, and Hanson refused and left the building with the belt. I was and there. Vern then just by default put the belt on on Bockwinkel, stating that Hanson had refused to wrestle him. And that uh, that has always been a contention of controversy because, you know, people think there should have been a tournament or that it shouldn't have been handled to Bachwinkle or that Vern made the wrong decision and so on and so forth. But uh, Hanson refused because he was going to Japan for eight weeks and he was going to be defending the title over there. And Vern said, I want you to drop it here before you go over because I need a champion here, and Hanson refused. That's where the story came in, Ed. Exactly. That's and you exactly. were there. And you were there, Ed. I was there. You know, yeah. uh, Hanson, in in his defense, he did not know what was happening. Well, he knew when myself and Buddy Rose told him, "Oh, you're not mm-hmm. going to be the champion." And he said, "What are you talking about?" And he got all upset. But we told him, "Well, yeah, interviews says Bachwinkle's now the champion." Yep, and that's what they were doing. That's exactly right. The interviews were, were all Bachwinkle was now the champion. Now, I don't know 
you know, what the inside stuff was, but I'm the one that told Anson, and so was Buddy Rose. And that's what he said. He said, I ain't doing it, and that's that. And, uh, you know, when it came down to it, he just walked. But should have Vern told him beforehand? I think that would have been a nice gesture on his part. I mean, I've seen that happen with a guy named Ron Starr, who uh, was the junior heavyweight champion at one time. And McGurk never told him that he was going to drop the belt. I think to uh, uh, Mantell, I think your brother. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, NWA and, junior heavyweight title. Yeah, yeah that's remember, right. He got, I remember Ron Starr yeah, came up to Calgary right after that. and he, he, he had been blackballed through the business because he apparently went to the papers or something and uh, claimed that Leroy had said he was going to have the belt for a year or something, and then they uh, – one uh, he got kind of blackballed for having exposed the business before Eddie Mansfield or something. But I remember uh, Ron Starr, and he was a hell of a worker. He called my dad up, and he said he couldn't get work anywhere in the states. He had been blackballed by all the NWA promoters because he uh, wouldn't drop the junior heavyweight belt to uh, I think it was Les Thornton or something, and uh, ended up. Uh, but I remember that and. Uh, it was kind of some kind of you know, nowadays, uh, you know, with all the uh, exposés and stuff, uh, it wouldn't even make any waves at all. But back then, it was kind of uh, you know, Star was kind of uh, tarnished, like he had done an Eddie Mansfield before Eddie Mansfield, and uh, I remember promoters calling my dad up and you know, bitching that uh, they were gonna have Stu drummed out of the NWA because he's using Ron Stark as Ron Starr had double-crossed and exposed Leroy and Bill Watts and all like that. But that was kind of funny uh, now that you mention it, though. Yeah. Well, well and I, I think the know, thing I, with Hanson, too, what Vern was dealing with, and I'm not defending Vern here, but what was happening was that, that Vern was, was used to having his title on his champion. And Hanson was an outsider who he put the belt on. And as I had mentioned earlier, and, and uh, Ed, you may have missed this, but uh, both Nick Bockwinkle and Jack Lanza had kind of tried to talk Vern out of putting the title on Hanson. And Vern was in the, the heat of the battle at that point in 86 or 85 with uh, Vince McMahon and he did because Hanson was a draw he was an international star he put the title on him but Hanson would tell Vern I'm not available for this date I'm not available for that date and I'm in Japan and and Vern finally just got fed up with it and said I'm going to go back to Bachwinkle and and uh, when Hanson was going to be gone that eight weeks that's when they were cutting those interviews that you spoke of and you know because they used to tape television in Minneapolis they do uh, four, five, six weeks of television. And so, yes, they were taping, and, and Nick was the champ. And Hanson wasn't around uh, at the time, and so, yeah, Vern should have told him. I totally agree. But yeah, he, he should was at the moment, it didn't happen that way. No, he should have He should have said, hey, you know, I'm going to change the belt before he – I mean, why would, you, why would you spring this on the guy the day of the show? Yep, I agree. I totally agree. And I mean, but the thing is, in hindsight, we can all criticize and and change, you know, say what should have been. 
I, I, it is what it is. If we could do it over, you know, we all say in life, if we could do that over and know what we know now, we'd probably do things differently. Was Wally around? When when did, uh, like, uh, I was always told Wally was uh, kind of a voice of reason or he seemed to... Uh, Wally always know. was. Uh, whenever Vern would, uh, you know, get hot at one of the guys or there'd be a little bit of a dispute, Wally was kind of that that calming waters that would come in and, and uh, you know, smooth things over. And, and the boys really respected Wally. But in 1986, Wally had, had was gone... Uh, him and Vern right. had a falling out, and right. uh, and and Wally was gone, so there was no calming water there. Yeah, I think the whole time I was there, I'd seen Wally two times, maybe at the Christmas party, and uh, that was it. He was he was never around. He was absent from the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my my dad told me when he was in there in the late '40s during the Tony Stecker days that Wally was. Uh, around even that far back, and he was sort of the transition between uh, Stecker and uh, Byrne, you know, and Byrne was... Well, when Tony, uh, Stecker, when Tony Stecker was the promoter in the 50s in Minneapolis, uh, Wally was the matchmaker and often worked as a referee. And then in the mid-50s, it was around 1954 or 55, Tony had passed away and his son Dennis Stecker yeah, took over. That? I, and it was Dennis and Wally that were co-promoting. There, there was a story going around. It was that it was almost like an inside job. It kind of, it was uh, uh, Tony Stecker's son Dennis. I was, I think that Dennis, was the name. Yeah. Uh, but yep. uh, I remember my uh, my dad uh, and other promoters used said there was almost like an inside job with uh, Dennis. You know, he inherited the business after uh, Tony died, and uh, it wasn't long after that that Vern, uh, you know, I was, I was actually told that business kind of was deliberately almost kind of uh, went down the tubes, and then uh, Vern ended up taking the territory for next to nothing from Dennis Stecker. Well, there was, there was a couple of different things that were going on at that time, Bruce. Uh, in, in 1957, um, that's when Stecker, Dennis Stecker and Wally were promoting. And by 1959, Vern and Wally had bought Dennis out. And yep. Vern had basically advised the, the NWA that he was pulling out of the NWA and going to start his own promotion. But you have what to remember, the, uh, too. Genesis of, what was the genesis of that? Was he in conflict with the NWA or just... Well, uh, at that, Vern wanted to be champion. Vern wanted to put himself over... We're going back to that ego again. Vern he wanted the, to put himself uh, over as world champion. He wasn't that big of a guy, Vern. You know, and the, and NWA, the, the NWA was not going to put the title on him, so Vern was going to start his own promotion. And what had basically happened was... Uh, at that same time, the NWA was under scrutiny for uh, with the, what is it, the Justice Department and uh, antitrust Ant- laws and the monopoly antitrust. and all this stuff. And yep. so with the blessing of the NWA, they gave up Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Territory. And Vern took it over with Wally, and in 1960, uh, Vern put the title on himself. And that was the AWA starting. In fact, this wow. month in 1960, it was August 16th, was the first 
official date of the AWA. That, that's almost wow. sort of uh, concurrent with the uh, Bruno and uh, Buddy Rogers. It's like uh, Buddy thing. Rogers in 61, 60, 61, but that was kind of, uh, yeah, I'd often wondered what, uh, I remember my dad told me way back in the day when he was first in the NWA uh, back in the early 50s, late 40s or something, that Tony Stecker was uh, like one of the main guys in the uh, NWA back in back in the San Well, and Joe Stecker, and Tony's, Tony's brother, had been a wrestler back in the 30s 20s. and 40s. Yeah, maybe the twenties. Yeah, he Joe Stecker, the leg scissors, or he was supposed to be a half old shooter, kind of mm-hmm. a crony of Strangler Lewis and uh, Stan Zabisco and those old farts, you know. But uh, but but yeah, that, that sort of uh, fills in some of those gaps. I had wondered because uh, my dad told me he worked back in the uh, late forties and uh, for Tony Stecker and. Uh, those guys, After World you know. War II, uh, that's when wrestling really started to take off in Minneapolis, and Tony was at the helm. And all through the 50s, um, the Minneapolis Territory, which all the boys referred to it as, was one of the hottest territories to come to. And if you look at the programs from that era, the 50s, it basically was a who's who of the wrestling business who came oh, through here. And I've got all the programs. I can show you know, I can show this to anybody that wants to doubt what I'm saying. Anybody of any name value came through Minneapolis. It was a hot oh, territory. Oh yeah, that's what my dad said it was uh, and then uh, they, they sort of had a uh you know, they were working a lot with Fred Kohler and that bunch in Chicago mm-hmm. and uh and uh a few others, but yeah my I'd often wondered because my dad told me when the original NWA kind of was formed in '48, '49. Uh, Tony Stecker was, uh, you know, uh, a big player. He was sort of like uh, one of the the main uh, cogs, you know. And so I'd was Wally how, Yeah, I'd often wondered uh, what transpired that you know would have uh, led to them. You know, uh, but by by all indications, it was primarily Vern's ego that was kind of the uh, the but, thing. But but you know uh, the other thing, Bruce. The other thing about that ego thing, which we've thrown out, and and there's no doubt that Vern Gagne had a huge ego. But as I said earlier in the program, well, and especially back in the fifties in the television era, Vern Gagne was as big a name on television as Luthez, Gorgeous George, Buddy Rogers. And Vern Gagne's name on a card brought extra people into the matches. And, I mean, whether that's ego or whatever, but Vern could deliver the real product because he did do, he did give them wrestling. He wasn't the showman. And he, he, yeah, and I he, think you know, he had the uh, pedigree from University of Minnesota and uh, right. that whole thing, you know, that, uh, and, yeah, I had heard that, you know, like even with some of his cronies, the Leo Nomalinis and some of those guys, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. those were big names from the football wrestling landscape in Minnesota. And I think at that time, Bernie Bierman and all that other stuff, you know, those University of Minnesota was like one of the top football schools in the United States back then. So, well, when you look at the... Pretty, 
you look at the main events that we had in Minneapolis featuring Vern Gagne in the in the 50s, Vern was wrestling against Hardboiled Haggerty. He was wrestling against the Kelmakoffs. He was wrestling against uh, Kinji and Shibuya and Mitsu Arakawa. He yeah. was uh, against Hans Herman, against Fritz von Erich. Uh, I mean, Vern was in the main event against all these guys, and they were all of the same age or, you know, at that point in time. But Vern was the draw. Yeah, he was a pretty... Uh iconic face you know and i i uh i could see wh- how or why he would have been uh as popular you know i i think he probably should have uh you know uh youth must be served as my dad used to say you know but i think that was part part of burns problem is he you know uh maybe by the 70s he should have been uh retiring or putting the strap on well but you know he did he did basically slow down in 75 that was the reason he put the belt on nick and if you look at at Vern's matches between 75 and 1980 Vern had a very very limited schedule of matches he wasn't wrestling full-time and then in 80 when he decided he was gonna put himself over as champion one more time and then retire in 81 as the champion that was, again, his ego. But I can tell you the fan base bought into it. Right or wrong, uh, you know, from a perspective, they bought into it because Vern was the, was the local hero. And that was huge. So, you know, he, sh- he probably should have gotten out years earlier. But, you know, the old thing, too, about a promoter and, and guys putting themselves over, you know, these guys knew they could trust themselves. They didn't have to worry about somebody pulling the double cross or, or no showing or, or whatever happened in the business. But then, you know, I look at a guy like uh, Ed Wiskowski who comes into the territory in 86, 87, whatever it was. You know, you, you saw the tail end of this, Ed, and, and you saw Vern at his worst. I mean, I think if you'd have been in the territory 10 or 20 years earlier, had that been a probability, you would have been in heaven working for the AWA. Ah, I could have been. I just remember one one time when I think it was the uh, the Christmas show in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Vern had, had put himself in a tag match. And uh, anyway, Vern gets the hot tag, and he's gonna give a uh, you know a shot where he draws back on the ropes and gives the guy a, a gut shot with his shoulder. Well, he he uh, let go of the ropes way too early, and he went back and landed on the concrete on his head. Oh boy! And I I never seen I can't remember one of the Russians Boris Boris Zukov Boris Zukov yeah I was going to give that thing to him. Boris Zukov was so worried about his job. Vern Vern, what happened? Oh my God, Vern Vern! Because he thought Vern was going to blame. Blame it all on him. When the old man, he just lost the rope when he went back to do that slingshot to yep. give him that shoulder to, to his gut. And he, oh, I just, I remember watching it. And, you know, Vern got up like he was molesting the coconut, rubbing that old bald head, because I know that had to hurt him. Well, you know, here's wow. something else about Vern. You know, we can at least be thankful that he never put the title on Greg because nobody ever accepted Greg as being 
big enough or, you know, championship quality. But I am only going to say this, and I was never a Greg Gagne fan per se, even though he is my friend, we talk often, but he was, I wasn't a fan of Greg Gagne. But I never saw Greg Gagne in a bad match, and Greg Gagne, I always felt, gave 110% every night he went out. And I think he had a lot to carry on his shoulders because the old man was always, you know, he's always being compared to his dad or having to, to uh, be in conflict with his dad. You know, I think like that is a pretty, You know what? I concur 150%. You know, it's it's like, I'm sorry, Mike Graham, good worker. Yes. Greg Gagne, great worker. Yep. But they are their father's son. People know that. They know they're going to get pushed. And so consequently, nobody believes in them. And, and that, well, that is you know, change. I can use this as an analogy. I had mentioned earlier that I was in banking, and I worked for a family-owned bank. And the kids, the owners, kids, never got the respect they deserved because they were the owner's kids. And and the average employee always perceived them as getting stuff handed to them or that they got this, they get their way because they're the bosses, they're the owner's son and daughter. And that is wrong, but it is the way it is in any business. Yeah, just part of the way life is. Just it really is. Hey guys, I got to tell you, we've got about ten minutes left in the show. George, I got to tell you, I love hearing what you're saying about the AWAs. I'd like for you in parting tonight to uh, uh, give everybody out there the information on your book and and how to get a, get a hold of one so they can know as much as, as as you know about the AWA. Well, that's very kind of you, Johnny. Um, my book, the first one, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. It is available at Amazon.com. That's the best place to get it. It can be in bookstores. You can order it from bookstores, but the best place is Amazon. You get the best price. And then the second book is the AWA record book, the 1960s. It is also available at Amazon.com. And both of them are, the, the Minnesota's uh, Golden Age of Wrestling is basically a chronological history of the AWA, along with bios on some of the main stars, the mainstays that uh, made the territory what it was for the, the 31 years that it was in business. And so that's what I would say. If you want to know about the AWA, take a look at it, and I appreciate it. And I have had a blast on the show, guys. Ed, it's been a pleasure. I don't know if you remember me, Ed. We... We met a few times at Cauliflower, and uh, I was a friend of Paul Pershman since the day he, before he got into the business. And, and Paul and I were old buddies when he first started here in the AWA as Paul Pershman, and then, of course, he went on to such a great career. And he I had did. met you at Cauliflower a few times. So Nice to, nice to touch bases again. Very much so. George, yeah, thank you so much for being on Heartbeat Radio tonight. I know Bruce loved having you on. We talked before you came on, and, and i got to apologize to Merv Unger and Matthew Mertz for not getting to him. But as the conversation went tonight, I thought it was best to stay in the direction we were going, so I apologize to them. And, George, I would love to sit down and talk to you more about the AWA days. Well, well, let's have you do on it again. again sometime. We can have another show or we can talk off air sometime or whatever. I, I'm always oh, yeah, glad to talk to, wrestling. 
I think we just scratched the surface, especially on some of those people like Wally and uh, even guys like Bill Casisto and some of those other names oh, yeah. that that were, uh, you know, kind of huge factors in that whole promotion. So I'd, I'd love to have you on again. I I, uh, I uh, was fascinated just hearing some of the names and the stories, and and uh, you certainly. Uh, you know, filled in the gaps with a lot of those uh, stories and uh, the Hanson and Byrne and some of the other. But, yeah, I'd love to have you on because we just barely scratched the surface. There's so many guys that we didn't even really get around to, uh, Billy Graham and some of those other guys that were major players, Mad Dog Vashon and guys like that. So I'd uh, be... uh, Delighted to have you back on any time, you know. And do you have any other books or anything else that you're working on right now, or you're? I do have another book that I'm working on, and it should be out at the end of September. It'll be the AWA, the '70s. So the '60s is out right now, available at Amazon.com, and then the Minnesota Golden Age of Wrestling book. But the, the '70s will be forthcoming, and then down the road we'll have the '80s. Well, uh, George, I'll look. I'll look forward to uh, reading them. Thank George, you so much, George. Ed. Thank you. No, George. Before you yeah. go, you know, one time when I was in Minnesota and we had traveled over to North Dakota, mm-hmm. and uh, who was the big jobber during uh, during Vern's highlight time? I can't remember. I'm trying to recall his name. Kenny J. Yes, yes, yes. Kenny yes. J. Sodbuster Kenny J. Yes, Sodbuster Kenny J. And Kenny's you know, doing well. You know, that's great because it's it's so funny when I was walking around, you know, this this small town and people recognize me, they never ask about the crusher, they never ask about the bruiser, they never ask about Vern. You know what their question was? <laughs> What's Sodbuster Kenny J doing now? And Kenny I, I, J was as popular as any of those guys, and and uh, I, I just found that so amusing because they weren't worried about the top stars; they were worried about the guy that got the shit kicked out of him every week on TV. <laughs> well, Kenny is a great guy. I see him a couple times a year, and uh, he just celebrated his seventieth birthday, seventy fifth birthday, seventy fifth. Oh, God blessing. But he, uh, he's a fun guy. He's he's loved, and everybody does remember the sodbuster, and he'd lost every week on television. He'd get a boot to the face, and the Mad Dog and Nick <laughs> and the Crusher and Vern, everybody would beat him. But, uh, you know, Kenny J., I'm going to sum this up, and then I'll let you guys go. Red Bastine at a Cauliflower Alley Club back in 1999, he got up on the stage, he grabbed a microphone, And Kenny J. was in the audience, and Red Bastien said, I want to pay homage to the Kenny J.'s of wrestling, and especially Kenny J., because without Kenny J., there would be no Red Bastien's, there'd be no Mad Dog Vachon's, there'd be no anybody else. And he says that was, he did his job so well, and he deserves the credit. And I think that says this better than anybody could. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. You know, I, I see these uh, Hall of Fames and everything else to guys that really couldn't even put their fucking tights on yep. if it wasn't for the jobber that made them look so good during their entire career. 
There you go. I salute those guys that really do the jobs, the talent enhancers or whatever you, you know, want to call them. But to me, those guys are the guys that need to be in the Hall of Fame. It's not the Hogans or the the Harley races or, or those people. It's the yeah, guys that yeah, I, uh, totally agree. made everybody else look great. Yeah. Awesome. George, thank you so much. i got to get out of here. i got four minutes left. All righty. Thank you, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Uh, thank all you, right. George. Thank uh, you. All the very best. I'll let George you wrap Shire's, it up. George Shire on with us tonight. Minneapolis historian, and you guys get out there and check his books out. Uh, I know I'm going to because uh, that's part of history. Ed, I'm sorry we're short on time. We're about three minutes from deadline here. Uh, I'd love to talk to you for another couple hours and visit with you, see how you're doing and where you're at and how's everything life treating you. But you're absolutely right. And, and I know when, when my brother Kenny and Fritz came to me here in Dallas in 1982 and said, hey, we got a spot for you. You're going to be in the middle of the card. Before anybody gets to wrestle any of the boys, they got to beat you. I knew that was a good spot for me to be in, and I stayed here for almost five years doing it, making a very good living doing it. So I appreciate the things you say about us guys that uh, got the Jimmy Garvins and the Kamalas and the one-man gangs and those guys over for the next tier. Hey, take care. I appreciate you coming on, Ed. I, uh, uh, I've heard so many good things about you for so many years, and uh, this just reinforced it. You know, I, I, I know my brother Keith and uh, Brett will be delighted that I uh, had a chance to talk to you, and uh, it, it's been uh, it's been a real thrill for me just to uh, uh, talk with you and Johnny too. But uh, you guys always just enhance my respect for you. For you guys and uh, make me uh, kind of reinforce my pride in in this business. You know, I wish there was more guys like you guys in this business. It would be a hell of a lot better if it was. Okay, thanks. Take care. Thanks, All the best, Ed, Ed and uh, look forward to the next time. All right, Ed Wiskowski. Bruce, I don't know what else to say. Uh, uh, those two guys alone telling some of the stories and hearing some of that past to me is the most important important part about wrestling today and for these young guys to really know the history and I know we're under 2 minutes now but I know that history is so important so that they know whether to dive back in or whether not to dive back in history is so important in this business yeah there's not enough of it you know this uh I I think that's one of my main objectives with even doing this show is uh just sort of having guys like that and uh, some of the other, you know, old legends, and I'm hoping that we can get a few more of them, people like uh, Terry Funk and, you know, some of the guys you know down there. And, you know, that's that's what uh, the business needs, you know. There's not enough of, uh, you know, uh, awareness and recognition of wrestling's past, you know. Unfortunately, uh a lot of people don't know anything about the business before Hulk Hogan, you know. So yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I consider, you and I've uh, talked about you and I've talked about that a lot, Bruce. Thank you so much for being being the host with the most tonight, and uh, 
Uh, God bless you, my friend. You behave yourself. I will, and I'm still looking forward to that uh, uh, Mantel's Marvelous Meat. I got jerky coming to you. I'm I'm looking forward to it. uh, I'm salivating. (laughs) Good night. Okay, and and give my very best to Kay, Johnny, and uh, I'm going to look forward to the next time, and uh, I'm going to get my brother Keith on here. He uh, he, uh, has nothing but great things to say about you and his trip to Japan with you and all like that. And he, uh, he tells me he's looking forward to hooking up with you on, on the radio next time, too. So I'll look Thanks, forward Bruce. to that. Thanks, forward to it, man. Let's get together. Okay, you got it, my friend. And, uh, all, all the right, very night, best buddy. to all the fans. All right. And everybody out there, thanks for listening to Heartbeat Radio. And again, I'm Johnny Mantell, your guest host tonight, going off the air with Bruce Hart. And I wouldn't, I'd rather not go off the air with anybody else but my friend Bruce Hart. Good night for Montague County and all of Calgary, Canada. <laughs>